Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. A lot of people have been asking if there are more opportunities to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards. Well, there are. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is December 20th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and have a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head on over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. No right answers, just art. They are hidden no more. Keep enjoying art, stay curious. Bitch better have my Monet. Hey there and welcome back. It's a little counterintuitive, but one of the biggest ways the internet has changed our lives is its impact on our real-world experiences. Virtually everything we do in real life, go to restaurants, use public transportation, go for a run or go shopping, is now tethered to and complemented by the internet. Our next guest, Sophie Anderson, has spent her career thinking about how the internet and technology can enrich museums and museum going. Her work has transformed the experiences of some of the world's most visited museums, like the Whitney, where she was the director of digital media, and the Tate in London, into more interactive and more vibrant experiences. Today, as interim head of digital at the Met, she is charged with thinking not only about how technology can improve the Met, but how it can bring the content, information, and mission of the Met to people all over the world. We started off talking about her early life, where she, unsurprisingly, I guess, grew up in a museum. I started out studying art history because I thought it was the perfect way to study and learn about many, many subjects in the world, which manifest themselves through art history in art and in culture. And I went into my career thinking that what I really wanted to do was to help other people really feel that connection that I feel with art. I grew up with art as part of my household. I had a very unusual upbringing. I was surrounded by artists and composers and um, theatre makers. And why was that? So I grew up in the Danish Cultural Institute. My father was um, running that in the UK. And the, the mission there was to bring Danish culture to the UK. And, and so you were literally in it. We were literally Not just in it. Like, like involved in it, but you lived inside of it. We so did. you lived inside of a cultural institute. We did. It was well, a very, very good, unusual. Good yeah. <laughs> so I would wake up in the morning not knowing who I was going to wake up next to at hmm. the breakfast table and sort of start conversation with and we had exhibitions and and performances. And so for me, art and culture were just part of everyday life. And I realized early on that that was a very unique and privileged perspective and it enriched my life greatly. So that was really my my guiding force going into my career. And so I started out actually at the National Gallery in London 
And I really hooked onto the idea that audio was a very, very intimate way of connecting with, uh, with audiences. And this was sort of in the earlier days of audio where it was, you know, very analog at that point, but it was going through a big revolution even then, mm. turning over from CD-ROMs to MP3 devices and, and, uh, and so on. But what remained constant was the ability to connect to individuals with really compelling content, with stories that the average museum goer just didn't have access to that I knew was was there. And so I really kind of came up through digital in a way as the as the field evolved. I moved through my career doing production with audio, going into mobile experiences and apps and multimedia and obviously through there. Uh, so at the National Gallery, you started in... So I started in audio. In audio. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so is this like the... This is sort of around the time where you got this sort of like small little thing. You put a little code based on the thing that was written on the card and then you had headphones on and it, the music played and it started, yeah. That's it. That's okay. it. And it was that. And were you working on the stories that were, sorry to interrupt you, were you working on the stories that are being told or on the technical aspects of delivering the audio? Or So my very first job was actually distributing audio way, way, way back when. And then I went into the technical manufacturer side. So I was on the technology piece where oh. we were going from CD-ROMs into MP3s and then I went into production. So it's, for me, it's been a constant back and forth between the content side and the technology and the product side. For me, they're all one part of the whole experience. Hmm. So, so yeah. That's um, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's a, the, the world of audio, that's like an interesting intro into digital. Absolutely. And I think, again, for me, the, the beauty with that experience was it really taught me that I don't ever want to get between um, the artwork, the experience and the human being. I want to get people as close together as possible. The technology, mm. the mediation should be invisible or you shouldn't be noticing that that is happening, yeah. um, certainly. And so moving into you know, interactivity and apps and media and, and video development, which I, I later did in my career, I still had that germ of that idea is how can I get people as close to the experience? How can I remove the barriers of entry? How can I how can I help them feel as inspired and transformed by this experience as as I am? And at least find that point of connection. It might not right. be that it's every single work for everybody, but there's something in there for for everyone. Now looking back on it, what do you think were some of the early successes around audio in museums, institutions, and sort of things they got wrong. And then also there's a simplicity to it back then, which I'm sure that you've come up with lots of new or more interesting ways of delivering some of that. Yeah, I think the big revolution was in in terms of the voice. So, you know, not speaking with an institutional kind of voice of authority, speaking with expertise, speaking with assuredness and kind of, you know, whether that is narration from, a, from a, a, an expert source or whether that's bringing in an outside perspective, Kind of having that multiplicity, diversity of, of perspectives is what I've been working on since the beginning of my career. It was there nascently, right from the beginning, kind of bringing in a more documentation, documentary approach to audio in museums right from the beginning. I think that sort of thematic approaches and figuring out ways to slice an experience for people, being able to choose kind of what route you want to take or, you know, the, the big revolution was in being able to do completely random, like you know, being in control of your experience, but then moving towards much more of a sort of thematic choice. And mm. I think now we're in a place where people equally like to be able to do whatever they want, but they also like to know that there's a slice just for them. Is and it some sort of a guide or tour or a curation? Or, or a theme, you right. know, something where it, it really meets you where you are, because, you know, your motivation for coming today might be very different coming tomorrow. You're the same person, but you might be coming alone today. You might be coming with your family tomorrow. You might be coming with a, a group the following day. And so 
finding something that's going to meet your needs and kind of really feel personalized in that way, you know, is where I see the future of, right. of this field continuing to go. And when you look back and you think of some of those images of those people using that early technology, what is the stuff that you, if you could just do over, like that didn't pan out well? I mean, I think people were very transfixed with screens early on. You know, mm -hmm. you can do a lot with screens when you're walking around the gallery and people got really excited about, you know, the power in people's hands right there, which is what everybody was always hoping to do. So I think there was a lot of energy around that, that the, the field has really learned from, that simplicity is much better. Often, you know, a very light touch approach in the galleries is better, you know, only kind of creating interactions when there is a really, really compelling story to tell or, or something that audio or something very simple can't do. And I think that, you know, now there are so many more ways in which we can do that. You know, we've got many more toys uh, yeah. in the toy box. Which is kind it, of also not good, right? Very, I mean, it's good, but it's also, too, you know, a lot to choose from. And, you know. Yeah, I think you have to apply those same principles. You know, what is the impact you're trying to have? What is the story you're trying to tell? What's the best way to tell that story? You know, and I think thinking about the environment of being at the museum versus being not at the museum. And again, that's you know, what we have the great opportunity to do is that we can think about both of those problems and they have very different solutions. Let's talk about some of the specific things that you've worked on. I think the first time I would say that I had become aware of a project that you had done specifically was um, at the when you were at the Whitney before and you guys did, redid the web app. A couple of things I remember, one is it was like a progressive web app, which is like very, you know, like very cool and hip to call our apps progressive web apps these days. And that was totally. like an early naming of, I remember that was like an early use of that, at least in my world, you know. But I also remember it was like sort of a, and this is probably how long ago that came out, two years ago? Uh, it was last year. Last year. Wow. Mm -hmm. It was also, um, until you're, you know so much more about this than I do, but the way I kind of remember something that was important to me is it was like a move away from a non-web-based app, mm -hmm. right? Like a app that you download from a store of some sort and to a web app that anybody could use. And that was, I'm sure there's other places that were doing that, but it seemed like a, the Whitney is now doing it this way as opposed to, you know, trying to have like their own private app. Absolutely. I think we recognized early on that while apps have a great utility in all of our lives for the things that we want to do again and again and again, you know, we all have our go-to apps. We use them every day. In museums, that user behavior is really, really different because you're coming maybe only once and you want the lightest possible touch experience with the technology and you usually want to use your own device when, mm -hmm. you're, when you're going. And if you don't, you want to use something that's at the museum. Again, it has to be pretty light touch. And our aim there was really to create the most seamless and frictionless experience with getting access to content again. And so we really designed, we were rebuilding actually our CMS at the same time as thinking about this. So it was really fortuitous. We could kind of design it from the ground up together. And we knew we wanted, again, the content that was most relevant to our audiences in the galleries, which was primarily the audio. And we wanted a very light touch way of getting people to that content. And so, you know, the industry at large has really moved away from downloadable apps. We've seen in museums Many, many museums have tried using apps to reach their audiences. And, we, you know, we've had some successes and mm -hmm. there's been some incredible development in the field and, and real thought leadership around it. But, you know, that, that moment has proven to be passed and we need to be thinking about how our audiences are behaving on their platforms and people want to be able to get to that content quickly. So in designing the web app, the progressive web app, as you say, you know, our thought was we wanted the best of an app-like behavior. You know, we wanted to have things contained so you knew that you were within one particular experience that was designed for on-site as opposed to just, you know, good luck with the website right. kind of thing, right. but without the heaviness of having to download something to, to right. your phone. And also because we, we, we did a lot of research leading up to it where 
We saw that a lot of people love listening to our audio remotely, actually, uh, which was really interesting to us. But we, we... Oh, without... So even it's meant to obviously be standing in front of something generally. And so even people at home are listening to it without being there. Yeah. So what we were testing was actually the audio we already had on our website. So uh-huh. we put everything, we were putting everything up there at the Whitney. And so we saw that people enjoyed listening to audio remotely. We knew there was an audience for that. We knew that they were being catered to. What we didn't have was something when people were on site. Oh, okay. And so we figured out that we needed to create that kind of on-site experience for people to connect. Interesting. Um, yeah. And we had great success. We also used QR codes to get people to that content, which at the time, I remember everyone sort of saying, you know, aren't QR codes dead? And right. everyone's moved on. And it's interesting because as we were exploring it, it just became obvious that it's being used in so many ways. You know, you use QR codes to launch your online tickets or, you know, in so many ways, get get materials from posters and, and all the rest of it. And it, it proved to be very, very successful. We put it up in the entrance of the of the museum and people, you know, standing in line could start browsing the experience before they got in. And you know, people still wanted to, you know, rent the devices for, for those of them that didn't have it. But um, right. yeah. And so you basically end up providing all the audio tour through the progressive web app. Yeah. So it's all the audio, there's some images, there's also accessibility information, but really light. And then you just, you know, use the images to find your way around or, you know, type it in the, the usual way. So there's a few different modes of behavior that you can take and it all runs from the museum central CMS. So it's all kind of one and done. Huh. And so you mentioned doing research and user research, right? And this strikes me like for other people who make digital products that listen to the Webby podcast, sort of one of the things that's really interesting and different probably in what you guys are doing and what your role is and then what like lots of other people in this industry are doing is you have all these people coming from all over the world, really, right? It's like I'm sure at some other museums it's a little bit more regional, but I'd imagine at the Matt and the Whitney it's like it's a global audience. And they show up to use your thing for like one time for three hours and then they're gone and hopefully they come back. And I'm sure there's New Yorkers that come back. But that's like a very different type of user set than like most people in county. Most of us out there making digital things are, you know, there's some, there's return, there's people who come back, there's a a specific demographic, there's, you know, more specificity to it. How do you think about that as a problem? Is the first thing. And then like how how do you research? How do you do user research around that? Absolutely. User research and data in general is really central to how we make decisions. We have to be strategic about which directions we pursue. As you say, you know, at the Met, we're serving 7 million visitors every year. And, you know, in order to really understand them, we have to do a lot of research, you know, across the museum. We do all kinds of intercepts and, and data research. But particularly on our on our website where we have over 30 million visitors every year, we really look carefully at how our audiences are using what we have and we test out before we try, you know, to launch the next thing and try and, and size the problem before we go ahead. To answer your question, though, I think we really see our on-site visit and our exhibitions in kind of one category. We know that local audiences are our main, main audiences traditionally for our exhibitions, whereas our collection is really where our international audiences are typically drawn hmm. and we really think about that in terms of yeah how we develop the the media that we have in our galleries and also our um, our web presence so our collection has been a really huge focus online for, for for many years and particularly over the last few years since we opened up a huge part of our collection to open access mm-hmm. um, license and so we are now able to reach you know a huge amount more people internationally than we were before last year released an API and that has exponentially increased our international use of our collection and reach of our collection outside the boundaries of our platforms. So, so what do you mean? Explain that a little bit more. What does that mean to use it, and what part? What are they using? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think 
this kind of goes much bigger than just what do we do in our platforms and kind of testing out what's working there. That's obviously really important. It's always going to be important for us to have a flagship experience and to optimize what we're doing there. We're an institution of 5,000 years of history representing cultures from around the world. We believe our mission is to reach the 4.3 billion internet connected users around the world, mm. not just the people who can actually make it to our physical building. Right. And so it's been really important to us to release that content outside of the boundaries of our actual website. And so in releasing our API, we've been able to partner with organizations like Wikipedia, with Pinterest, with many other partners to seed our content on their platforms and and on platforms that we are not, you know, we're not designing, we're not designing the full experience, but our content is part of an ecosystem of, of content and creating connections between that content is what's been particularly meaningful for us. So, for example, you know, in order to know that we have something really interesting on Henry VIII, or if you might be interested in doing some research on pineapples, for example, you're not going to come to necessarily the Met's website. But if you go on Wikipedia and search any of those subjects, you'll find a work from the Met's collection as part of that set of information. Hmm. And increasingly, we are releasing our data and working much more closely with, with Wikidata to make sure that we're actually part of the knowledge graph where people are really, you know, again, doing search and trying to look for information. So the question is less, are you looking for a particular work of art or is there something in the Met that's going to interest you, but rather... What are you looking for in your daily life? What is it that you need in your daily life? And how are you creating meaning and relevance in your daily life? And the Met is part of that conversation. The Met is part of that set of, of knowledge bases that you have in mm. order to draw upon. So just to use your pineapple example, and it doesn't have to be really at the pineapple, but as an example, if I went to Wikipedia and I was interested in pineapple, the idea is that supplementing information that the Met might have around the history of pineapples or articles written about specific things might be there, or that it would be important, I feel ridiculous saying important pineapples in time that have been captured by artists, but maybe that's what it is. Um, historic paintings that have pineapple. I mean, really should have chosen a better pineapple. <laughs> it's the one that, it's the one that fun is the funniest to okay. say. So that's yeah. why. Um, I mean, I think if you take the Henry VIII example, you might be looking for information about Henry VIII. You may not realize that his suit of armor is in the Met's collection, for okay. example. So, you know, whether it's the image or the data connected with that, historical period or that historical character or, or a photo of the of the suit of armor exactly so there's there's many ways we've released both images and data hmm. and so there's ways in which now the wiki community is creating connections with our collection that we weren't necessarily even making hmm. and that's also the really interesting thing so i mean obviously we may have made the connection with the pineapple example but we're thinking about knowledge making not just as closed in within the museum's mm. walls, but in partnership with our communities and with the world, you know, that that's the next step. Then maybe that's been the Met's mission for a long time. I think for most people, that probably sounds like a bigger mission for a museum than they typically would think, you know? How do you think about what success means doing that? You know, because I think obviously people who give money to a new wing or whatever can see how many new people came and saw the artwork and there's lots of stuff there. But if you're trying to think about how all the content and history that sort of the Met has is shared with the rest of the world, that's a harder thing to put numbers around, I guess. It is and it isn't. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which you can look at the numbers. So we know that there are met objects in 225 million wiki articles, for mm. example. Like that's a that's a really yeah. big number. So there are definitely ways in which numbers matter. But again, I think those connections are the ones which are, are much bigger and harder to put a finger on and that are incredibly meaningful. I mean, I think if our mission is to 
share knowledge, creativity and ideas with the world. We're really fulfilling our mission, as you say, in a way that is far beyond, you know, where our founders would have considered the the realms of possibility and certainly for, for many other institutions. And that's an important role that the Met is playing and should be playing. You know, yeah. we are looking at how do museums matter in the future. And, you know, from our perspective, it's that we need to be part of everybody's lives. And it's sort of the same kind of going back to, you know, what we've been talking about from the beginning, which is that meaning making can happen in so many ways. And it can happen for, for some when they come through the doors of the museum and they get access to all of the facilities and the experience. But for many others, they're not going to have that experience of coming to a museum and there should be equal access. How do you think about trying to, of course, provide access, but make sure that communities that haven't typically historically had that access get it, right? And so, you know, every, this is not the matter of the Whitney in particularly, but lots of museums are the ones that have the most artwork and are the most appreciated are in Paris and New York and London and these, you know, gleaming capitals that are far away for lots of people and certainly even for people who live in those countries and estates sometimes inaccessible. And then there's historically lots and lots of communities that have just not had access to museums, have not been part of something that was easy to, you know, visit. And I, it sounds like you guys are probably really aware of that and thinking about that. How do you do that on the internet? How do you make sure it's not just, you know, people who read Wikipedia, which is a lot of people, but yeah, I think, as you say, it's something we think about a lot. And it's really, really important to us that we're looking outside of our typical communities and that we're really looking at building partnerships with organizations that have different kinds of reaches than than we do. And we are really, again, with our API, seeing that academic communities are coming to us, corporations are coming to us. There's a lot of ways in which we're able to branch out far beyond the, the museum sector and the and the cultural sector, where, you know, there there is a sphere of influence and access that that is historical. And I think this is really the the important next step in in our journey as an institution is to make our content available. I think there's another part of that which is about making our storytelling relevant. And that's mm. that's a part that we think about a lot too. And for me that's around ensuring that we create a real multiplicity of narratives and perspectives and, you know, ask the hard questions and challenge ourselves and our audiences to really go beyond the most straightforward presentation of information. And we are exceptional at doing the, the, the really important kind of work in terms of ensuring that we are understanding our uh, materials and understanding the importance of our collection. I think that where we are really seeing growth is around the multiplicity of narratives. And it's something that's been important to me from from the beginning, as I mentioned. I think that, you know, hearing from someone outside of a museum and understanding how they respond to and are inspired by uh, what goes on in, in the museum or responding to a work of art can really transform the way that you think about it. And actually, we're working on a series right now called Met Stories that really looks to bring in perspectives from outside the museum sector and to understand how art and museums can really be a place of meaning making and transformation for many people, whether that is specifically around an art experience or whether it's around coming and finding serenity in our building, whether it's around meeting someone for a date and going up on our rooftop, whether that is around finding solace in our collection after a traumatic experience, or whether that's just coming in and being inspired in your own creative practice. And so that's that's what our focus is right now, is that that series that is both a produced series, but it is also an online social activation that we're that we'll be running next year. So that's part of the 150th anniversary of the Met, right? And so you're inviting people who have had 
or the Mets made some sort of impact in their lives. Maybe it was some fun little thing. Maybe it was something super important to come to the site and share those things. And then you guys are going to make videos out of it or yeah, so we're doing film, a, I should say. Yeah, we're doing sort of in the in the the true kind of nature of all things digital, we're doing everything. So we're doing film series. We're doing a, a social activation where you'll be invited to share stories on our social accounts and they'll be shared back out again. We're also looking at on-site activities where people can come in and do some kind of story slam type activities. And I think the important thing there is going, again, beyond the usual stories that you might hear in museums and reaching out to the communities of the people that are coming to talk to us about their stories and making sure we share this really widely. So I wanted—I just wanted to pick up on one thing you said earlier, which was around the people who come to the museum and that you're saying that regional audiences who go to the exhibitions and the global audience comes for the collection. In the Mets case, yeah. Yeah, in the Mets case. And why? So I think that, you know, it's it's human nature when things are there all the time, you're less apt to kind of go back to them. I mean, I should say that a lot of our locals do go to our permanent collection. We have a huge and very dedicated member base. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, and I, of course, in the aggregate. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah. But I think that, you know, it's one of the things where museums are being storytelling for for a long time, you know, and the ways in which we cast a new light on our collection is through exhibitions. Mm. So we bring together, you know, materials from our collection, artworks from our collection, and marry them with those of others to tell a new story. So that's, you know, that's a way of kind of refreshing and mm. and, and people who come from afar haven't ever been they want to see the core stuff there's certain works that are very famous that are there and they haven't seen those absolutely yeah mm. and i think that you know for, for many people they're coming to see things that that are very famous or they're coming to see areas of the collection that are really important to them culturally you know there's, there's lots of different reasons but yeah i think it's that kind of once in a lifetime factor you know go to a place like the met you want to see the things that that everybody's heard about and mm. that are important to see but so what are the challenges? So if you're thinking then, if one of the core things you're thinking about is how do I make this, how do I use digital media, technology, devices to augment in a way or, you know, not for everybody, but to make this even a richer experience. But you have people that are in the museum that speak like 18 languages at a time. You know, there's, I don't know how many different languages being spoken. My guess is it's well above 10 at any given day. Um it's just, a, I mean, it would just seem like a, a huge challenge in terms of like making all of it accessible to them. You know, I think there, there are many ways in which we provide translations for our audiences at the museum. And again, I think that online we do an incredible job for our audiences where we are able to kind of put our content on Wikipedia, which is, again, translated in 300 languages, which is just something that we couldn't do. We just don't have the resources yeah. to, to, to do that. And, and with our local audiences, we know that we can build up a really rich experience in, in English language materials and they'll get you know, a tremendous amount of, out of that. So we're really targeted in where we offer up the, the, the deeper dive efforts mm. um, on the website. And you have a lot of young people come to the museum, right? And I would imagine a lot of kids. Absolutely. And I think that really thinking about the the voice and tone of what we produce has been a personal kind of mission of mine since I arrived at the museum just a few months ago. We've created some new products for some of our, I would say, younger-minded audiences, not necessarily just for kids. But our primers are a really mobile-friendly and fresh way of getting into our exhibition experiences. They're called primers because the idea is that you're, you know, you might want something to kind of hook you in before you come to an exhibition, you may want some kind of sense of what you're getting into before you come. And so they're super immersive. They're very light touch in terms of the overall experience, but they're grounded in methodology around kind of 
a skim swim dive experience, sort of knowing that for some, they just want the surface information for others. They want a little bit deeper. And for some, they want to go really deep and get, get a lot of content. Um, there's a lot of, again, like very mobile first kind of interactions on as part of the experience, because we know that people want that, particularly younger audiences. And the kind of storytelling we're doing is also really ensuring that our audiences know that they're going to get a very special take on the subject when they come to the Met. So we've just done one for an, our last night exhibition, which is all about arms and armor. And the, the main Why is it called last night? It's, it's about Maximilian I and his, um, his propaganda, really, to kind of ensure his legacy. And so the, the primer really gives you kind of a, 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 a three-step guide to that, including kind of how to build a, a political legacy, which we thought would be uh, particularly compelling to audiences to, today. Huh. So are the primers, they're designed for younger minded and meaning that like anybody who doesn't know about some of this stuff, like primarily a lot of youth use them, but anybody who doesn't know would feel comfortable like using them and they're kind of for everybody in an easy way to jump into something. Absolutely. And I think it's it's a great way for, you know, people who are preparing for their visit to get into the subject before they come. And, you know, knowing that, you know, our our audiences are looking online for materials before they arrive. And not necessarily, you know, they there's there's always a little bit, but not necessarily knowing, is this something for me? And I think that's the question that we're really trying to ensure they they feel excited by what what's happening and get a real get a real taste for the fact that it's it's going to be a compelling experience. Mm. Do you find that younger people and like, I just, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I went to lots of museums as field trips and that kind of, do you find that they have a different attitude toward some of the devices and technology that can be used for the experience? Are they more prone to want to try and experiment or less interested in it? Like, does it, does it make a difference based on age or? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, we get so many young audiences at the museum. Many of them come with their schools and, and, you know, do programs through our education department. But I think for a lot of young people, they're using the same tools as adults. You know, they're going to their social channels, they're going to YouTube to, to watch materials. Mm. And so, you know, I think that it's, it's a challenge definitely in terms of making sure we have really amazing content reaching those younger audiences where they are. And we're really looking at the ways in which we partner with educational organizations to get, get our content out. We have a fantastic program called Met Kids, which is targeted for 7 to 12-year-olds. And a lot of that programming really features kids talking to curators and asking them the mm. questions that they always wanted to ask. And it's a great way to, to really show that, you know, that, that kids can ask difficult questions and it's not a place that kids feel like they have to arrive at with, you know, all the answers or they're intimidating. So, you know, that I think knowing that YouTube is one of the, you know, the fastest growing places for kids to, to look for content, that's one of the areas that we've really targeted in terms of developing materials for them. I think for kids coming to museums, you know, there's, there's so many uses. There's kids coming with parents, there's kids coming with school groups. And ensuring that there is a wide range of materials and different kinds of options for them is something that uh, that we're always looking at. You know, and do you think people need a device to come to the museum? You know, we're in a moment where we are really reliant on our devices and we go to them for, for everything. And I think it's really important for museums to be judicious about how we use that opportunity. I yeah. think that, you know, we, as much as we want to get content into people's hands and on those devices... I think we also have an obligation to think about kind of what's the future of that interaction look like. And when you're coming to a museum in particular, it's it's such a special 
opportunity to do something different than what you're doing in the rest of your life. You know, I think that stepping away from your screens and stepping away from your devices is just as important as kind of making sure that you have the experience that's kind of optimal for what we're hoping you'll get out of it. So I think there's ways in which using a device can be, again, really, you know, if you're kind of able to create really transformative experiences, whether it's through audio, whether it's something totally different, like an AR, you know, experience, there's so much you can gain from it. But there's also so much you can gain from just putting that device away and having that interaction with the work of art and walking around the galleries. And, you know, that might sound ironic as someone who's been in digital for a long time and is really thinking about how to optimize that opportunity. But I think we're increasingly thinking about how to do that responsibly and to provide moments of calm, too, and and moments where you can disconnect from from what's going on in the outside world. And there are not that many places you can do that. Yeah, and I mean, it just strikes me as such a challenge. I mean, you see this in all places that are so interesting or so beautiful or have so much to look at that people do want to capture those things and they want to be able to share them with people and talk about them later and taking pictures is to some extent part of that taking videos a part of that but then we all have that experience of trying to see something and everybody's like filming everything and then there's we all have the experience of watching a video of everybody filming something and at some point you know at some point it's like oh this wasn't as great as it could have been or used to be but it is nice when you get to show it to people and so the museum just really strikes me as sort of like a place that's at like the pinnacle of that that challenge really you know yeah, and I think we're we're lucky enough that we have a lot of spaces and art to play with. So we're really looking at kind of what works for a particular space and for a particular story. And again, it goes back to what's the best way to tell the story. And if the best way to tell the story is just to be with the work of art, have nothing else going on and create an environment of calm and quiet, that's what we should be doing. If the best way to provide a really optimal experience is to create an incredible AR experience that kind of recontextualizes a work of art. So you're your mind is blown because you've never seen anything like it before, Mm. then that's what we should be doing. I think it's not a one size fits all. And I think that, you know, we should be providing some, some choices for people and reminding them that they have those choices and that, you know, we take that responsibility very, very seriously. Someone somewhere is like, we don't want the Met to turn in like where the entire thing is orchestrated for, you know, an experience to be seen outside as opposed to appreciated there. I think this is where museums have something really, really special to offer as places of convening, as places of connection, you know, again, with artworks, with culture, with ourselves, you know, it's where we can think about our own identities. And there's very few places that we can connect as human beings, connect with human ingenuity, and to do that in a, in a live space. And so I think being really mindful of that as we as we create experiences. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I, of course, understand that, you know, that, you know, whatever is the best medium for the story we're trying to tell. I get that. But as somebody who is into storytelling and works in the space, I'm sure there's like, you know, there's like new things that have become possible. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to tell every story in that way, but it would be fun to try to try and do so, you know, it would be experiment. What, what sort of are the things you're hoping to experiment with soon? Totally. I mean, it's a little bit like choosing your children, which you would never want to do. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that it's, uh, not just because we are doing a podcast right now, but I think we are really excited about the potential of podcasting. Mm. We've been in the audio world for a long time in museums, as we've, we talked about, but really kind of doing something that is much more conversational and that is more topical is something that we're really interested in. I think that, you know, there's a long way for us to go in terms of video, too. There's just so much potential there in terms of different formats. Uh, different ways to tell stories, whether it's episodic, whether it's breaking things down and, and um, creating the choose-your-own-adventure of videos, which I think is such an exciting area for, for storytelling. And then there's also, you know, great excitement around new emerging technologies like AR. And I think that while they're not a one-size-fits-all, and I, I certainly don't think they're a kind of be-all and end-all of an experience, I think there's a lot we could do with looking at how to do storytelling that is more experiential and not sort of a one-to-one of this is this thing and mm. I'm going to tell you about it. So, And then lastly, what are you thinking, if you're thinking about the museum of the future, what's it, you know, like, not necessarily a museum that exists now, but really if it was like, if a museum opened in 20 years, didn't have all of the stuff it currently has to serve, what are the types of things you think we should expect? And also just generally, like, where do you think the experience of museum going is going? So I think if you asked me what my ideal museum of the future looked like, I think the question I would come back with is whether it was a museum at all, whether art was actually in one place under one roof. And we spoke about earlier, I grew up kind of having art and culture as part of my everyday life. And so that's really what I would love to see is that it's relevant and something that people can connect with in their everyday lives. That it isn't, um, there isn't this idea of a museum in and of itself, and you kind of go and and uh, pay homage, um, but that it's part of your everyday conversation, as meaningful as you know the last film you saw and the last book that you read. In terms of what I think the museum of the future might actually look like, I think that our online presence is going to be increasingly important, and if not as important, and in fact, you might even argue more important than the physical building. Again, in terms of why we will matter to people, it will be about creating those connections and relevances to people's lives. I think that in the spaces themselves, I actually think that in a lot of ways, what we were talking about before, kind of removing barriers to entry and being able to kind of stand in the museum, point your phone to anything in the galleries and have it tell you something about it is, is I mean, that's not even 20 years away. That's, you know, that's now mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. But to truly be able to do that and kind of access any information that you want at your fingertips. And then similarly, I think going in a direction of very, very experiential spaces and, and having greater dialogue between different kinds of art and different kinds of collections, I think will be will be another way that we'll see museums continue to evolve. Sophie Anderson, thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. That was great. Thank you. Thank you so much to Sophie for stopping by the studio. And to learn more about my Met stories, visit metmuseum.org. 
If you like the Webby podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really like it and want to go to the extra mile, leave us a review. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com, that's webbyawards.com, or on social platforms at the Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is not a wombat. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.